you wanted the best, you've got the best podcast. The hottest, hottest. podcast in the world. In the world. The Chris Voss Show, the preeminent podcast with guests so smart you may experience serious brain bleed. The CEOs, authors, thought leaders, visionaries, and motivators. Get ready, get ready. Strap yourself in. Keep your hands, arms, and legs inside the vehicle at all times because you're about to go on a monster education roller coaster with your brain. Now, here's your host, Chris Voss. Hi, folks. This is Voss here from thechrisvossshow.com, thechrisvossshow.com. Welcome to the big show. We certainly appreciate it, my friends and family. The big circus tent in the sky, the greatest show on earth that has the greatest audience known to man ever assembled, or, you know, somewhere close to that. <laughs> anyway, guys, welcome to the big show. Uh, as always, refer the show to your family, friends, and relatives. Uh, you know, you want them to be smarter so that you can tolerate them more, right? Or they can tolerate you. So that's why you listen to the Chris Voss Show. So refer them to the YouTube.com for it says Chris Voss, Goodreads.com for it says Chris Voss, and LinkedIn.com for it says Chris Voss. Go see the big 130,000 LinkedIn group over there and the LinkedIn newsletter. There's two of them. There's one for me and there's one for the show. And uh, that thing is killing it over there. Like people on LinkedIn, they're really professional and smart, at least some of them. Not me, but most people. Anyway, we have an amazing author on the show. He's a scholar, brilliant mind, and as always, we bring brilliant minds to the show because I am not one of them, and this is how I learn, folks. I flunked out in school. <laughs> That's actually half true. Uh, so he is the author of the newest book, Creators Take Control, How NFTs Revolutionize Art, Business, and Entertainment. Edward Lee is on the show with us today. His book just came out, uh, and uh, it's hot off the presses. March 28th, 2023 is the full release date, so you can pre-order it now and get it wherever fine books are sold. And uh, we're pretty excited to have him on the show today. We're very excited. Not pretty. We're very yeah, what are we talking about here? Uh, Edward Lee is a leading expert on NFTs. He is a professor of law and co-director of Chicago Kent College of Law's Center for Design, Law, and Technology, the first U.S. institution devoted to research of creativity, technology, design, and the law. And the law. Uh, he is also the founder of the nonprofit The Free Internet Project, which analyzes developments related to internet freedoms and preserving the free and open internet. His popular website, no n o u n f t uh analyzes latest news controversies and developments in nfts he's a sought after speaker on nfts and he spoke about his theory of nfts as decentralized intellectual property at nft.nyc 2022 the largest conference on nfts in the world he's a former contributor in the huffington post and he's writing on the topic on the internet copyright and pop culture has been featured in outlets like the washington post billboard etc etc uh welcome to the show edward how are you i'm very excited to be here uh chris thanks for having me on Thank you for coming. Congratulations on the new book. I guess the .com, wherever you want people to find you on the interwebs to get to know you better. Why don't I uh, direct people to my book website, creatorstakecontrol.com. Creatorstakecontrol.com. And it has a summary of the book as well as uh, places like Amazon. You can order it or pre-order it. There you go. We've got a copy here that we've been playing with. Uh, quite thick, too. Quite detailed. <laughs> So what motivated you to write this book? Well, I think this book actually called me to write it. It's a very interesting 
uh, story. About two years ago, there was a sale on March 11th involving Beeple's work, and it was for $69.3 million, immediately making him the third highest sale of a living artist at auction. Wow. And nobody had heard about Beeple before in the art world. He was well known in social media and his digital works were freely shared on Instagram. Um, but the art, traditional art world really didn't know about him until this $69 million sale two years ago. That was the epiphany for me and I'm sure me others to start paying attention to this new technology called an NFT. And just to make a long story short, uh, since we only have an hour to discuss this, uh, I shifted my research uh, on at that moment to focus and to learn more basically, what is this NFT and uh, what is it, how is it actually operating? And then one thing led to another and I started writing about it, uh, some research papers, and people started taking notice. And then that led to the book proposal and the book deal, and then this book. There uh, you go. Yeah, so that's the, um, the kind of the shortened version of how I ended up writing the book. But I, I do feel that it was something that really called me to investigate. And uh, it was not something that I had originally started out thinking uh, I would write a book after, uh, you know, becoming interested in the topic. Mm -hmm. And you have quite the history of, uh, you know, dealing with law, technology, art, et cetera, et cetera. What, what, what got you into the space? What, what motivated you to, uh, to uh, kind of, uh, you know, get where you are? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, since the advent of the web, and especially when Napster was a thing, uh, I was incredibly fascinated uh, by it. And I was a lawyer at that time practicing at a law firm. And when the Napster case occurred and I saw the disruption to copyright law, mm. uh, that was when I was like, okay, well, I want to write about this. I want to write about the internet and its disruption to uh, copyright law and to other laws. Mm -hmm. uh, and I also, um, uh, so I quit my law firm job. <laughs> yeah, I just quit. I just you know, you know, point blank quit and decided I, I wanted to start writing. And I, I didn't have a job lined up, but I spent about a year um, or so uh, pursuing scholarship. And then eventually I got a fellowship at Stanford Law School at the same time when uh, Larry Lessig, who was the leading thinker about internet and the law at the time, who really sort of sparked a whole line of scholarship, uh, you know, Tim Wu and others uh, who were either taught by him or worked with him, started writing about the disruptions to the law created by the internet. Mm -hmm. And the other ingredient that fascinated me uh, about NFTs, I also am a freelance photographer. Uh, so I have an artistic uh, bent to me as well, uh, which is one of the reasons why, you know, when the sale of Beeple's work occurred, 
I was like, okay, well, this is an interesting uh, development for the art world. Uh, let me uh, investigate it in addition to the kind of construction of virtual ownership, which is the, I think, the primary benefit of the NFT. Mm-hmm. That's awesome, man. It's it's quite the space, and it really exploded on the market. And and uh, for those who don't understand what it is, we should probably do some layman work here for for the uninitiated. What is an NFT? Let's lay that foundation for uh, audience members that may not be up to speed. Well, I mean, the NFT is um, basically a computer program that is called a smart contract. It creates a token representing virtual ownership of something else. Uh, And it could be anything, you know, typically the most high profile uses are with art, especially digital art. Mm -hmm. People's work is a compilation of 5,000 digital artworks that he had created over 13 years and put it into one big giant collage. Um, but, you know, really, you could use the token, the non-fungible token, to designate anything that can be owned. And what the benefit of this virtual ownership is that it is permanently recorded on a public ledger called blockchain. Mm-hmm. And blockchain is just a peer-to-peer network that uh, helps to create a permanent record of transactions. Um, and if I could use it just a, a sort of an analogy to help people grasp what's really going on, uh, everybody practically has a smartphone. And on your smartphone, there are virtual keyboards, buttons. It yeah. used to be they were physical buttons, right? The Blackberry. But iPhone and Steve Jobs kind of innovation, 2007, was to say, okay, well, we don't need these physical buttons. We're going to make it virtual, right? And there was initial skepticism that that would catch on because people were so used to a physical keyboard. Mm-hmm. And it's like, how would this work? Uh, you might start hitting two virtual key, you know, keys at once. But we all know, you know, it actually works really well and it maximizes the screen. Uh, And that was like the innovation that Steve Jobs had at that time when there was skepticism. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, who owns the virtual keyboard on your phone? Well, I think most people think they do, right? They they own the virtual keyboard uh, because that's they have a physical device hardware that the software is uh, located and stored, right? Mm-hmm. And then through the software, it creates this virtual keyboard. That software is actually licensed to you from you know, Apple or it could be Google, you know, whoever the manufacturer of the smartphone is. But the arrangement is something where uh, it, it's a complex arrangement where some aspect of it is owned and some aspect of it is licensed. But in, in, I think, in practical effect, people just think I have ownership over my smartphone, including the virtual aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Now, what an NFT does is something analogous. But instead of having the physical hardware of the phone, you now have a token, 
a virtual token stored on blockchain. And also the here, the art is analogous to your virtual keyboard. That is typically licensed with a contract to use, but you don't actually get you know, ownership of the uh, artwork in the same way that you would if you have the phys a physical copy of it. Mm -hmm. uh, so in, you know, in the, to, to sort of tie this all off, the virtue or the utility of the NFT is it is creating a virtual form of ownership. And, you know, as our world during the pandemic became more virtual, uh, this took off, not surprisingly, right? Mm -hmm. this, this took off in 2021 especially, and uh, that's when we interacted a lot on, uh, you know, Zoom and kind of virtual platforms. Yeah, there you go. So it's it's a great way uh, artists can license their stuff. Business, I know businesses are trying to do things where they sell NFTs. Uh, one thing you talk about in your book is a new theory you call tokenism. Is that pretty much, it sounds a little bit of what we've been talking about so far. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And I, I should preface this because the uh, word tokenism is more often used uh, in a negative sense to refer to. Yeah hiring practices that's not the tokenism i'm talking about oh i'm talking about a capital t tokenism uh which i uh sort of analogize to the last big uh sort of transformation in art cubism uh, of the 20th century okay where there was a radical shift in perspective on viewing and representing artworks that picasso and brock uh, are considered to be the co-founders of that uh, style or movement, Cubism, when uh, things were depicted with uh, sort of what was likened to as cubes. Uh -huh. But it was actually a layering of multiple perspectives simultaneously in one representation. And that was like the radical shift when it was no longer like Leonardo's famous Last Supper, where the representation is a linear representation that, you know, kind of looks like what you might get out of a photograph, uh -huh. camera, it's like mm -hmm. straight on, it's from one perspective. Picasso and Brock were like, no, uh, what, what we are viewing can be seen from multiple perspectives. Mm -hmm. uh, okay, so that is cubism and, you know, today, Cubism has been widely recognized as one of the most influential artistic movements of the 20th century. Uh, wow. I, I don't think there is a serious art scholar that disputes that today. Although at the time when it first came out, <laughs> many people uh, thought it was crazy and deranged. Um, so that you know, that's a whole other uh, story that we can talk about. Yeah, most people uh, think that of me, so I know what that's like. <laughs> uh, you a little bit, a little bit disruptive. Yeah, there you go. But, uh, that's a little bit of me too. Just to tie <laughs> this into tokenism, tokenism has a similar shift in perspective, but it doesn't relate to the creation and viewing of art. Instead, it relates to the ownership of art as well as other subject matter. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. And it is a shift to predominantly expecting a physical manifestation of ownership Mm -hmm. to now accepting a virtual form of ownership. And Mm -hmm. as I said, that could be applied to uh, virtually uh, all subject matter that can be owned. It could also apply to a sort of abstract concepts. I mean, people are using it for intellectual property transactions. Potentially, you can use it for membership to rewards programs like Starbucks is already using it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so like it, it's a convenient way to uh, verify like who owns a part of whatever the subject matter you want to include or designate as uh, tied to that particular NFT. There you go. So you predicted in the future, uh, it'll just be as common for businesses to use NFTs as as it is for them to have a website. So this is still going to explode, even though it seems to have done a up and down curve and fallen off a little bit. You you think this is still going to become commonplace? Yes, exactly. I mean, I, I think what we saw in 2021 was the boom and bubble and speculation of the prices. And, you know, that gets kind of distracting because uh, people are fueled by uh, speculation that uh, they want to get rich overnight, you know, with uh, buying one NFT. And, and, and frankly, some people were lucky enough to, to do that. But in terms of like the businesses, why are all these businesses uh, developing uh, NFTs? It's because it provides a new and I think arguably better way to interact with traditionally we call them consumers. Mm-hmm. Now it's sort of more apt to call them community members. Uh, the benefit of using an NFT is one, it is permanently recorded. So as long as you have it in your wallet, so to speak, uh, you will never lose it, right? It, it will be there. And then two is you don't re- need to disclose your identity necessarily uh, to own an NFT. You simply need what's called a crypto wallet to purchase it. And many of those who are leading the way in this development believe that the sort of like the big tech uh, companies had too much control over personal data mm-hmm. and you know really ha- people had really little privacy because of what's called surveillance capitalism how if you are a user of social media well everything is uh, potentially being tracked by the social media company so they can send targeted ads to you what the benefit of an NFT is, is that you don't need to disclose your personal identity, but you can still uh, have a relationship with, let's just use Starbucks as an example, since they are actually doing this right now. Mm -hmm. You can uh, have an NFT from Starbucks and they can continually uh, reach out to you through your crypto wallet, what's called an airdrop. And Mm -hmm. Uh, give you a new perk because you are part of their community. 
Uh, Nike is another company that is, has already implemented NFTs uh, after they acquired the company Artifact, a startup company that was an innovator in NFTs. So just imagine, th this is more kind of my uh, hypothesis or speculation of what Nike could do, uh, but it seems pretty evident from some of their current uh, business uh, ventures with NFTs is, let, let's just imagine uh, I buy a, a future NFT of Nike's that entitles me to the latest Nike fashion both digital fashion and physical fashion. This combination is called digital. Just indefinitely. Like I built up this relationship through the purchase of an NFT. And through that NFT, uh, I become a community member of Nike's and have this ongoing relationship. And I think, you know, we've only scratched the surface of how businesses might use nfts to engage what's you know typically called the next gen consumer mm -hmm. uh, those are the millennials and the you know generation z uh generation alpha down the road who are already living in virtual worlds mm -hmm. and that's what the businesses are are seeing you know it's you know often the label of the metaverse is used but that that i think um, sometimes gets drained of uh, meaning. Uh, if we think about it in terms of virtual interactions, then I think people start realizing, well, that, yeah, that's going to happen increasingly in the future as, you know, let's say the Apple uh, iGear uh, comes out, uh, that's you know, rumored to come out this year, Samsung, uh, there will be more virtual interactions I think in society with all of these businesses developing new technologies and also new ways to interact and NFTs provide one vehicle for that kind of virtual interaction. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that's what is like the you main, the biggest utility of it is that it facilitates virtual ownership and virtual interactions. Mm -hmm. uh, I think there's no question about that. One thing that was interesting about when NFTs came out, there was people trying to make NFTs of everything. And it was interesting how, you know, I know I, I've gone to YouTube school on parody and copyright uh, stuff. They put you through uh, for three, I think it's three days of schooling. And one day is pretty much devoted to, you know, copyright parody, uh, you know, the ability to take other people's work, copyright work and, and add parody to it so that you're not in violation of, of copyright law and uh they discussed very heavily with us uh and and taught us a lot well, one thing that was interesting with nfts were you know like i think somebody took a tweet of like jack or something and tried to turn in the for jack's first tweet of twitter and tried to turn it into an nft and you saw i think some people that were using either logos or brands or somehow incorporating brands the brands weren't too happy with it uh you, you want to talk on that a little bit about you know where there's where there's good stuff but there's also kind of like a thing where you know there needs to be a, a monitoring or you need to be careful how you're utilizing you nfts that might have a copyright sort of issue yeah i mean it, there was a characterization this is we're back to the wild wild west days of you know kind of napster um jack dorsey's tweet was actually one he sold and uh 
Oh, the the infamous part about it was that later on, I guess the value of it had plummeted to, you know, something that's so low after somebody spent, I don't know, what was it, $5 million or so on that first tweet. That was definitely <laughs> the highly speculative days of the bubble. Uh -huh. um, in terms of unauthorized uses of either trademarks like Hermé just had won a lawsuit against uh, NFT creator, uh, that kind of thing. Um, or uh, unauthorized use of copyrighted works. Yeah, there still can be, you know, claims of infringement brought mm -hmm. if the owner, and it's, it's more typical, the, a traditional business would file a lawsuit if somebody else is making an NFT from their copyrighted content or trademark content. Uh, the at least some of the marketplaces are also filtering for that kind of uh, unauthorized use. Um, so OpenSea has a filtering process, kind of like YouTube's filtering process, where they are tracking for exact copies of already existing uh, NFTs. So, you know, the most popular NFTs typically get copied. And uh, OpenSea, which used to be the market leader, but not anymore, uh, they, they have a filtering technology so that that does not uh, find its way uh, for sale on um, OpenSea. The, the final thing that I'll just say in terms of unauthorized copies of either copyrighted content, um, maybe less so with trademarks because there's actually a duty to police for unauthorized trademarks for the trademark owner. But for copyrighted content, what we're seeing with at least some of the startup companies and uh, so-called Web3 creators, this new era is called Web3, we're seeing a lot more permissiveness in remixes, unauthorized remixes, and unauthorized versions. Um, why is that? Oh, especially for the most successful NFT projects. Let's say the CryptoPunks is probably the top or maybe if not the top, the top two uh, NFT project out there. There are so many copies of that project, including exact copies that sell for, you know, very little uh, compared to the $100,000 at the floor price for one CryptoPunk. Mm -hmm. Why do they let all of these unauthorized copies exist? I think the reason is the NFT has changed the economics of copying mm. because the copy does not substitute for the NFT, the token. The, you can identify on blockchain who has the authentic CryptoPunk from the original producer of it. So all of these copycat versions, um, you know, might be in a, in a way promotion for the original. It also might be um, a, a way to rethink copyright and the existence of unauthorized copies uh, 
in this new digital age. There you uh, go. That's that's to me is an exciting development. Is that the economics underlying cultural production has been radically changed. There you go. So uh, this may have been answered in the question uh, that I'm getting uh, off the live feed. Uh, my good friend Stephen, he asks, how does the market handle derivatives that are very minor, like X is sold in blue, then green, then red? Does that depress the market value? I think we kind of are writing on that right now. We're, we're talking exactly. About. Mm -hmm. You know, at least for the you know relatively successful artist, those are the artists that tend to be copied, right? Because they're mm -hmm. like, okay, well, if you copy an unknown artist whose NFTs are not selling, well, you're not going to sell the <laughs> you're not going to sell the copy because the original is not even selling. Uh, so the copies tend to happen with uh, the more successful artists who do have a market. Uh, so that's what they're trying to tap into. Ultimately, whether somebody the artist complains about an unauthorized derivative is up to each individual creator yeah because uh, you have so an interesting thing like you you mentioned this earlier alluded to it as as a copyright owner you, you it's your job to do your due diligence to protect your copyright and if you don't protect it and if you allow it to get in hand but i guess there's kind of a balance there exactly. uh, one of my favorite bands in the world is metallica and recently I noticed they entered, well, I think they've been on there for a while, but I noticed recently that they'd uh, been producing on TikTok, which is really popular with the kids these days. <laughs> um, and uh, one thing that was interesting, because they've been, you know, they, they were known back in the Napster fight, the, the fight that you originated uh, in during this sort of arena with, um, you know, they were big on that copyright Napster fight over, you know, their music being distributed by, you know, these things, Napster and all the other, because I think it was Kazoo and there was a, there was a bunch of them. LimeWire. Um, and LimeWire, yeah, the downloading and then the suing, they, they sued people, uh, or at least I think the artist, uh, the central artist agencies were doing that or the labels. But um, one thing that was interesting is I saw them posting uh, kids playing their music. And I thought, well, that's kind of interesting given they used to have, you know, Lars used to have a pretty hard stance on their music. But the, you know, the homage factor of where it's honoring the song and it, it, it helps popularize. You also saw on TikTok, which exploded hugely, I believe it was the song Rhiannon by Fleetwood Mac. And it was a skateboarding gentleman. I forget his name, but he famously was drinking, I think, cranberry juice, ocean spray cranberry juice, and skateboarding down the road to the uh to the fleetwood mac song and it sold it it like put them back on the charts it sold like millions of copies and uh it made them hugely popular 40 years or so after the album and so all these artists started jumping onto it so it was interesting how people are willing to kind of we're all kind of trying to find that space between copyright parody and and uh, what we want to do to really popularize something Hey, that's a fantastic example, Chris. Um, I mean, TikTok, TikTok is uh, such a dynamic platform where in the example you brought up, it's quite interesting. I mean, it, it's user-generated content, but also Ocean Spray, you know, the trademark being used, the song, copyrighted song being used 
Um, now, I think TikTok now has licensed most of the music that is now on their platform. In the beginning, it was a little bit more unclear, but uh, you know, the industries get together and they're like, okay, well, you need to license all this stuff. Uh, but that just gives you an, an example of how uh, a platform, an internet platform, can spark creativity mm -hmm. in a way where it might not necessarily fit in with the technical requirements of copyright in the sense of, you know, somebody might say, well, that was unauthorized and therefore it was infringement. Um, but as you said in your you know, description of that example, everybody was fine with it, right? All of the relevant IP owners were fine with, and actually it helped them, right? It, it publicized the song, it publicized the ocean spray uh, drink, cranberry juice, et cetera. And I think they actually reached out to him and they uh, gave him either a supply of ocean spray yeah. or, or a car. <laughs> Uh, or a, they may have given him a car too. Uh, yeah, uh, and I, I think that just shows we, especially lawyers like myself or law professors, we often like fixate on like the law in the books. Mm -hmm. It's like okay, here's what the technical doctrine says or the statute says, but. We also need to see what's happening on the ground. Mm -hmm. um, there, I mean, you know, history repeats itself so much. I mean, this is goes back to the beginning of the 20th century. You know, I pointed to Cubism, but I could also point to a movement called legal realism, which mm -hmm. was also at the start of the 20th century, where per, one of the leading thinkers about legal realism was Carl Llewellyn, and he was a professor at Columbia Law School, and his brilliant insight was that. Contract law should not be studied solely in the books. We need to look at what businesses are doing in practice. And we need to make the law align better with what businesses do in practice. And that ultimately resulted in what's called the Uniform Commercial Code or UCC, which is adopted by all 50 states in the United States. And it's, it's a more practical orientation to contracts and agreements. My book is doing something similar. It's taking a more practical look at what creators, businesses are doing with respect to copyrighted content, with respect to you know, creative works, and trying to figure out, well, how does this actually occur? And it, it is occurring, I think, in a kind of transformation and reconfiguration of some of the rights that are granted under copyright, but uh, creators are really, through licenses, devising kind of their own arrangements that can, for instance, going back to derivative works, one very common clause in most of the licenses of the top 25 NFT projects is granting a right to the buyer of the NFT mm -hmm. to create derivative works of the artwork. Uh -huh. Even though the creator keeps the copyright to the artwork, they are licensing the right to make a derivative version and to even monetize it, to commercialize it. Uh -huh. And yeah, I mean, it's incredible. It is 
It would be analogous to Walt Disney in the beginning of the 20th century saying, if you buy Mickey Mouse ears, this merchandise, you could make a derivative work of this and also uh, monetize it. Now, we all know that would never happen. In the 21st century, these very innovative young startups, you know, they're trying to, to use a different business model. And it's, it, the vehicle is through this token or NFT that comes with a license to do certain things determined by the producer. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So uh, let, as we get uh, rounding out the show, uh, let's touch on one thing I, want, I was kind of curious about your opinion on. You talk about how people around the world are building a better internet and Web 3.0, I guess. Uh, what, what, what do you feel about that? There's been a lot of discussion, kind of controversy as to who controls it and some of the, uh, I think some of the uh, investors behind it, uh, namely uh, the Netflix investor uh, Anderson Horowitz uh in different things like that and there's been you know all sorts of arguments about about yeah. the future of it uh, give us an overview of that if you could in a short summary well this goes back to i think the current you know backlash against big tech <laughs> uh you know the big social media companies google as well uh m being able to uh make a lot of policies uh, so-called community standards, uh, especially with respect to moderating content on, let's say, Twitter. Uh, you know, Elon Musk was really big into this issue. That's why he bought Twitter. Uh, so there is this backlash against big tech. You know, some of it may be unjustified, but some of it is justified in the sense that uh, it is dangerous to have either a government or a corporation exercise so much control over people's ability to use the internet on these platforms. And, you know, by and large, that's how uh, people use the internet and are finding the news through social media, not through individual uh, websites. Uh -huh. the, the promise of Web3, the aspiration of Web3, is to make the web more decentralized to, to return it back to more the beginning in of the web in you know late 90s uh early uh 2000s to not have uh the control in a few big tech companies but to have it more dispersed the the power and the ability to interact and i already mentioned the privacy aspect how people see privacy as a major component of uh, Web3 because you no longer have to disclose your personal data, such as an email, to interact with uh, different uh, platforms. You can just wow. simply uh, sign up through your wallet. Now, you also mentioned, I think, one of the challenges, which is a big venture firm, uh, A16Z, or it could be any other, right? A lot of money from uh, Silicon Valley, or it could be elsewhere. What happens for Web3 and decentralization when there's a lot of money through venture capital investing in a company? Now, typically, the investors 
or expecting a return on that investment. And usually it, it has been in the form of an IPO. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, five years is the average for a startup to go into an IPO. And that's when the um, venture firms, you know, really see their returns. That model, I think, is in tension <laughs> with this goal of decentralization. Mm-hmm. Because if you are expecting an IPO, mm-hmm. then you are expecting to see, you know, more uh, revenue, potentially profits from the startup. So what I described before about this more decentralized business model with uh, granting owners of NFTs the ability to commercialize their uh, artwork that is a part of their NFT, that doesn't benefit the startup company directly, right? That mm-hmm. if you had the NFT and you could uh, commercialize it, even for like this show, uh, the producer of the NFT would not be benefiting from the revenues you derived. Um, so like if, if the goal of the startup company is simply the traditional route, then yes, you know, I, I think there is this tension that uh, it may end up favoring a more centralized, uh, more old school approach, which is not what, you know, a lot of the reform minded people want. I should also mention, you know, A16Z, uh, Chris Dixon is one of the leading uh, uh, sort of directors, uh, backing Web3 startup companies. Uh, and at least in his writings, you know, it appears he is really uh, strongly behind decentralization. But I, I think your question is a good one. We don't know yet how it plays out, especially if the most successful projects must rely upon venture capital, because then you know, the, the fear is you know, it'll become another Facebook, right? Yeah, it'll just decentralize again. Yeah, that, that's the fear, but um, uh, it's it's too early to tell whether there that's how it will play out. There you go. Well, this has been really insightful to learn about and everything else. Uh, anything more you want to tease out on the book before we go? Well, I just wanted to say it's available for pre-order right now on Amazon, and it comes out March 28th. Uh, I hope you pick it up and enjoy it. There you go. There you go, guys. Uh, so thank you very much for coming on the show with us, Edward. Uh, give us your .com so people can find you on the interwebages. It's creatorstakecontrol.com. The title of the book, creatorstakecontrol.com. There you go. Uh, folks, order it up wherever fine books are sold. You can find it at Amazon or other places. Creators Take Control, How NFTs Revolutionize Art business and entertainment out march 28th 2023 you can pre-order it now and uh, get it wherever uh, uh, you can get a head start on uh, beating all your friends in the book club to the punch uh thank you edward for coming to the show we really appreciate it thank you the pleasure is all mine chris there you go and and our audience as well uh and uh go to goodreads.com forward says chris voss youtube.com forward says chris voss linkedin.com forward says chris voss refer the show to your family friends and relatives and all that good stuff thanks for tuning in be good to each other stay safe and we'll see you guys next time and that should have